Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Nate G, and today I had the pleasure of chatting with Boris Allergunt, head of DeFi markets at Ripple Labs. Ripple aims to be the premier provider of crypto solutions for businesses, a space it's operated in for over a decade. Boris and I discussed his perspective on crypto's impact and future growth potential in the realm of traditional financial services and how businesses transact money. We spoke about Ripple's solutions in the XRP cryptocurrency and XRP ledger on which Ripple builds its products, and what distinguishes it from other blockchains. We also discussed his role as the head of DeFi at Ripple, and what decentralized finance actually means. Additionally, we chatted through his views on recent challenges in the crypto and fintech landscape, the growth of central bank digital currencies, his career path and choice to pursue an MBA, and much more. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Boris, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well, Nate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a total pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. To start us off, can you give us an overview of your background and what brought you to Ripple? Sure. Uh, my journey to Ripple was, uh, was a rather interesting one. So I guess prior to joining Ripple and prior to, prior to coming to, to business school, uh, I did about seven years in TradFi sales and training and investment banking. I really went to business school to actually transition to the fintech space and really specifically to cryptocurrency and in the digital asset space. Uh, I was lucky enough to find an internship at Ripple between my first and second year of business school. And then I've been here you know, ever since full time. But my journey into crypto really started in, in 2013 uh, when I was on the trading floor at JP Morgan. Uh, basically, a friend of mine was posting about how much money he made trading Bitcoin. And I was, you know, an analyst early on in my career. And I was like, what is this stuff? What is Bitcoin? Well, it didn't matter to me, right? I had, all I knew is I could speculate and trade on it. So I ended up wiring some funds over to, to Mt. Gox, which is a defunct <laughs> exchange <laughs> at this point. Um, you know, all two of my Bitcoin was stuck there in, in, a, in a bankruptcy proceeding uh, because the exchange was hacked. And, and that really started my journey. Uh, Again, purely for speculative reasons, but afterwards I was like, oh, what, what did I just buy? Well, what is this Bitcoin? <laughs> and I went down that rabbit hole of what is blockchain and really how it can be used as a store of value and, and, and seeing it as you know, potentially the future of money and the evolution of financial services. So like I mentioned, been with Ripple now, man, since, uh, since 2019, so coming up on four years full time and it's, it's been an awesome journey. That's great to hear and, and nice to have the perspective of someone who's been at Ripple for quite some time, but exposed the world of cryptocurrencies for even longer. And talking now about Ripple, uh, can you trace us back to its origins and foundational B2B functions? You know, how did it start and how has it grown over the years? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ripple is, is primarily a software company and we're a software company that builds crypto solutions primarily for enterprises. Uh, and so the when we started and we started you know 10 years ago we started building our products on the XRP ledger which is a open source decentralized permissionless blockchain uh and we went and we saw areas where there is the most friction right in 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 traditional financial services and we really tackled and zoned in on the cross border payment space you know cross border payments today even today right can take two, three days to settle. And this is at the same time when, you know, you could send a message, right, or a photo immediately with a, with a snap of a finger. And so we built 
a product that helps facilitate cross-border payments. Uh, if you distill a payment, there's really two components. The first component is that messaging layer, and that's what Swift is primarily, right? It's that mm-hmm. messaging layer that says, hey, move funds from this bank to this bank. And that was the foundation of RippleNet. And it was really a kind of a two-way messaging layer. If you think of Swift, Swift is really like the fax machine, the fax machine without a read receipt. You say, hey, I want to move funds from here, from account A to account B. Swift would send that message. It's a one-way message. Uh, and it would, like I said, like a fax machine, you have no read receipt. It can print back in the days. It actually would come out and print out and people would lose those wiring instructions. And that's why you've, you've heard of payments being lost. But mm-hmm. the second component of a payment is really the settlement layer. And that's where our product on-demand liquidity came out. Uh, and on-demand liquidity leverages the the uh, XRP digital asset as a bridge currency in order to move funds uh, between two countries. So let's say you're sending money from U.S. to Mexico. What our software does is it takes your U.S. dollars, converts it into XRP, takes that XRP, sends it over the XRP ledger into a Mexican exchange, does the reverse transaction, sells that XRP into Mexican peso. Now in Mexico, you have Mexican pesos in Mexico. And then the last mile through Spay, which is the local uh, payment rails in Mexico, moves from this exchange into a user's bank account. And that whole process takes you know three seconds. So a huge advantage over the current Nostro Vostro uh, account mm. relationships that you know banking rails are built on today. Amazing. Thank you for that. I think it's uh, a good overview of the original sort of cross-border inefficiencies that Ripple addresses. Now to go a bit deeper on an important piece of this that you highlighted, XRP and XRP Ledger. I'd love to hear from you on what distinguishes this from Bitcoin, Ethereum, or other digital assets in their blockchains, specifically concerning the consensus mechanism determining how the blockchain functions, which I think is called proof of association in the case of XRP Ledger. Can you explain how that's different from proof of work or proof of stake, uh, which listeners might be more familiar with because of Bitcoin and Ethereum? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so XRP is the native asset of the XRP ledger. And as I mentioned, XRP ledger is one of the oldest blockchains uh, ever. It's been running for over 10 years. Key advantages or I guess key features of the XRP ledger, right, is it's cheap and it's fast. Right? It costs less than 0.0002 cents to send a transaction on the XRP ledger. Now, cheap and fast, I think, you know, in this day and age, 10 years, you know, since <laughs> Bitcoin's been out, is not really as big of a competitive advantage. You have a lot of a lot of layer ones and a lot of blockchains that are cheap and fast, but very few are stable, right? Very few have been going block for block for the last 10 years. And part of that is you know, the design of the XRP ledger, I think it's consensus mechanism. And it is this proof of association, some Byzantine fault tolerance. It's a consensus mechanism that is not proof of work or proof of stake. So Bitcoin, as you may have heard, right, it's proof of work that requires a ton of electricity and a ton of miners to perform really complex calculations uh, in order to come to a consensus, whether to figure out transactions real or not. And obviously, the, the pros of that is there are mining rewards there, right? As a miner, I can run a, a miner rig, and I, if I find the block and I perform that, that function faster than anyone else on the network, I do get rewarded with Bitcoin. The con of proof of work, right, is it's expensive, draws a lot of electricity, mm-hmm. not very green, right? I, you know, you see some, some, some stats out there 
uh, about proof of works uh, electricity consumption. It's quite staggering. Now, with proof of stake, and that's what Ethereum and I'd say a lot of other layer ones uh, have as a consensus mechanism, it no longer requires the need to to mine to 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 use you know a lot of heavy equipment, heavy and, and electricity. It requires uh, the use of basically your tokens to prove that you're doing the right transaction. So the, the idea of proof of stake is if you are an illicit actor in a proof of stake mechanism, you would you're staking your assets. You're saying, hey, trust me, here are my assets. And if it's wrong, the assets get taken away. And the positive of that is really an answer to, to Bitcoin's proof of work and the electricity consumption. The con of that, however, is uh, that larger players who are larger holders of the native asset, whether, you know, big Ethereum holders, et cetera, they tend to have an outdo influence in the network, right? Especially when it comes to voting and things like that. So therefore, that's a real kind of risk. And, you know, you hear kind of decentralization arguments, how decentralized are some of these network given kind of proof of stake. With XRPL consensus, it's, uh, it's neither proof of work and no proof of stake. So it doesn't matter how much XRP any individual has in the network. They have the same influence on it uh, as, as anyone else. And that's because of this proof of association algorithm, which is a Byzantine fault tolerance. There is what's called a UNL. It's a unique node list of trusted counterparties or trusted nodes that the community comes together around. And those nodes are responsible for really validating transactions on the network. If any one of those nodes is uh, is a bad actor, because it is a community-based approach, that that node will be removed from that trusted node list. And there's scores and things like that where you can track the nodes. Again, pro of that, right? It's cheap, it's fast, it's stable over mm. 10 years. Con of that, well, you, you're not getting rewarded to become a node operator, uh, which is a very unique kind of uh, approach in the crypto system, right? In, in the digital mm. asset space. Uh, everything's really based on a lot of economic incentives. The view on XRP Ledger is, it's, I would say, more of a Web 2.5 approach, right? If you're building a business on top of a network, let's say even in the Web 2 space, are you going to run your own servers, right? Are you gonna, you're going to run your own servers, you're going to run your own Amazon server, whatever it is. So the idea is you're running nodes on XRPL because you're building a real business. And some of the node operators we have, you know, are a ton of our payment providers on there. There's uh, a lot of universities that are on there. Those are the type of people building, uh, uh, running nodes and a ton of folks that are building actual businesses on XRPL as well. Okay. And, and just to make sure that I'm thinking of this correctly, a couple of the benefits of uh, proof of association in the case of XRP are that it avoids the environmental concerns that we tend to see with proof of work. But at the same time, it allows for avoiding entirely the sort of outsized network influence that large actors can have in the case of proof of stake. Is, is that all fair to say? Exactly. Got it. Exactly. Right. So I think one of the big criticisms of proof of stake is, hey, the, the, the outside, the individuals or the groups that tend to have more of that native digital asset, whether it's from, you know, an ICO or from, an, from you know, rewards previously, et cetera, they tend to have an outdo influence on mm -hmm. the network or there's a risk of that. Uh, and obviously, as you continue to stake and continue to validate transactions on the network, you're you get rewarded, right? And your your size of market share, if you will, right, continues to grow for those individuals. 
One more quick question on this proof of association point. Is this a concept that is gaining traction beyond XRPL in the world of in the world of crypto, or is it really still unique to to XRPL? Yeah, look, there's a there's a couple of other chains using BFT. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think Stellar is using BFT as well. But you know, Stellar can argue was a fork off of off of XRPL. Uh, there are a number of other chains that are moving away from proof of stake and and uh, and proof of work and coming up with similar type of algorithms as well. Uh, you know, proof of authority type of algorithms are also say a derivative of this proof of association. Right? They're very similar, very analogous. Uh, so there are a few of those, and, the, and they tend to be getting more traction, I'd say, with institutions Got it. Uh, and enterprises, more so than uh, I think I've, I haven't seen really any DGEN protocols really come up and say, <laughs> hey, we're going to be, you know, proof of, proof of uh, association or proof of authority. Awesome. I think we'll shift gears a little bit now to Ripple's Liquidity Hub product. So what types of use cases are you seeing for this? And in other words, how and why? Are businesses or financial institutions using it for solutions outside of just payments? And then more broadly speaking, how are businesses getting more and more involved with crypto apart from just you know, payments as we've discussed? Yep. So Liquidity Hub it was really the second product that, that Ripple came out with after focusing on, on RippleNet and ODL. And that really came from customer demand, right? Our customers for our payments product are these payment institutions, right? Folks that are looking for alternatives to the current banking rails and SWIFT. Their customers have, over the last three years, have been asking them, hey, I want to buy crypto. How do I do that? And so that is how, that was really the genesis of Liquidity. I was listening to our customers uh, and, and being able to offer a one a single solution for buying crypto assets and it's really b2b to c right so are the users that are really using this platform liquidity hub are the customers of the businesses that are you know called banks financial institutions crypto is not their you know bread and butter business mm -hmm. uh they're not they don't understand it they they want to get involved and they're trying to you know satisfy demand of their consumers so therefore this is why we created this liquidity hub product and what it effectively, what it really does is it's a smart border router uh, and it allows, it's connected to a number of exchanges on the back end, a number of uh, OTC desks, a number of, well, let's call it liquidity venues. It's really a hub for liquidity and users will say, hey, I want to purchase Bitcoin or another digital asset can do so through liquidity hub and it'll find the best, cheapest price, best execution. So that was really the genesis of it. And, and we've seen quite a bit of demand for that from our existing customer base. Okay, so it's, it's fair to say that the end user for that is essentially like consumers who, who are being helped by uh, Liquidity Hub as a, as a means for them to transact in, in the world of DeFi and cryptocurrencies. Exactly. And, and primarily in the world, of, let's say in the world of cryptocurrencies, right? It's step one is really just acquiring digital assets, a way to buy these digital assets and hold them in a, in a safe and compliant manner. If you, you know, go back to Ripple's history, we've always chosen to work with banks and financial institutions. That's very much in our DNA. Uh, you know, we firmly believe that institutions will be the ones that end up bringing that global adoption of crypto and blockchain. They're going to be the enablers of it. They're going to see that this technology can, one, really create efficiencies to grow their bottom line. 
uh, you know, as much as we hate the banks <laughs> and, and the crypto <laughs> industry talks about, you know, uh, about the banks, but uh, we we firmly believe that banks could be the enablers and the biggest adopters of this technology that will eventually be you know spread out through the world. Now I'd like to pivot to your role as the head of DeFi at Ripple and taking a step back on this as background for our listeners. Can you give us a quick overview here? What is DeFi and what are its main advantages? And then also, what's your role as the head of DeFi at Ripple? Great. Yeah, uh, it's short for decentralized finance. And in my mind, it's recreating financial services on chain and really using blockchain technology to enable financial services. And there's really three financial services functions uh, that DeFi can enable. It's payments, it's lending, and it's trading. Uh, Today, if you look at it in the traditional financial services world, payments, lending, and trading are all done through centralized counterparties. So when you send, let's say when you trade, right, a stock, you trade on the, you know, you're, you trade through your Schwab account, but ultimately, right, the stock trade goes through the New York Stock Exchange and it matches uh, buyers and sellers. It matches, you know, the opposite order. That gets cleared on the New York Stock Exchange. They take a fee every time they do that, right? Technology has evolved to the point, or what's what the beauty of, of blockchain technology is that it can remove the need to trust that centralized counterparty. In my eyes, financial services is the ultimate use case for this technology. It can bring the cost down for the end consumer because you no longer need to pay a fee to the New York Stock Exchange to match that order if you can do it in a decentralized way. The same thing happens with lending and payments, right? You go to your bank, right? They charge a fee for origination of that loan, right? They take a cut of that. And then guess what? They're also using consumers' deposits, on the other hand, Mm -hmm. as as the money to fund your loan. Imagine you could get rid of that centralized institution and you could significantly decrease the cost. Now, on that note, right, what are the advantages? We've seen kind of fractional <laughs> reserve lending, right, and, and kind of the issues with SVB had, right, with the mismanagement of its assets and liabilities. Theoretically, DeFi can bring a lot more transparency to this entire system, right? So you're able to really see what's happening. And in a world of DeFi where these are fully funded kind of uh, assets and liabilities, you wouldn't have this kind of situation that that has, you know, you wouldn't have this banking crisis, and you'd argue that is, you know, why Bitcoin was ultimately born, right? In the in the Satoshi white paper. Now, my role uh, at Ripple on DeFi, uh, heading up DeFi, is figuring out how to implement these types of solutions and create businesses around those three primary financial services functions. You know, trading payments and lending, how to bring about institutional adoption of that of decentralized finance, how to build that on top of the XRP ledger. And so for me, you know, it's the, it's enabling those three uh, functions through partnerships or through building out that technology ourselves, but also figuring out an ecosystem of services. How do we bring about institutional DeFi adoption, right? How do you you know, having those three functions and using the technology to enable them is just step one. But what about the rest of that ecosystem? Compliance, taxes, KYC, mm-hmm. and monitoring, all of that needs to be in place in order for institutions to come on board uh, and really take decentralized finance to the next level. It seems like to the extent that DeFi works and develops as you envision, as in creating new efficiencies that can hopefully modernize aspects of traditional financial services, 
it could really cut into the ways that banks traditionally make money. So what role do you expect the banks to have? Do you think that they'll want to or need to embrace further movement toward DeFi? Or are they fundamentally at odds with some of what could happen here? Yeah, I I see banks and financial institutions being the enablers. They're going to be the first adopters. The reason they would adopt is because it could create efficiencies for them, bring their costs down. If it does that and grows their bottom line, they're going to then roll that out to you know the retail user base. And so it's really, I see it as, for lack of a better word, B to B to C, right? Mm-hmm. Most of us will interact with our financial institutions to send a payment, right? To do a trade. And do we ultimately care if that trade is done through a decentralized exchange or that payment set through a decentralized manner? No, we just care that the payment gets there, the trade gets done, that it's cheap, that it's fast and it's secure. And so I, I see really these institutions uh, bringing about that change and really, really being the drivers of that adoption. And for them, it, it's really, you know, you look at the bottom line and the impact that it'll have on their bottom line. That's what, that will, that's what we'll be driving. So ultimately, it's growth, you know, will take the place of banks' traditional avenues to make money. The landscape will ultimately be different based on the ways that DeFi can help, essentially. Exactly. And, and just think of it this way, right? Yeah. We always talk about the, the underbanked population, right? That there's a huge number of people in the world that are not banked. Uh, and we don't really ask the reason why, right? Well, in, you know, the real reason is because it's just not economically profitable for these banks to bank them under the current set of technology mm-hmm. that they have. So DeFi could bring about what, what we firmly believe at Ripple is this internet of value. It could make it profitable for all of these unbanked people to now become banked through the adoption of this technology. Got it. And then I, I want to ask about a major recent advancement in DeFi for, for Ripple this automated market maker functionality. Can you unpack this for our listeners and tell us the impact that can have and really, you know, what, what does this mean? Yeah, absolutely. So just to take a step back, so Ripple, like I said, is a software company. We are one of the contributors to the XRP ledger, the XRP ledger permissionless decentralized blockchain. As one of the contributors to the XRP ledger, we do from time to time put amendments where we feel are important for the growth of the XRP ledger. And one of the amendments we put forward was XLS 30. And XLS 30 is an automated market maker function. And the automated market maker is really an application that you see on a lot of other blockchains. And it's really the cornerstone for decentralized finance trading. And the way automated market makers work is the price of an asset is set by the relationship between two assets in a liquidity pool. So let's say you have 1,000 USDC and one ETH, the price of ETH is now 1,000 in that pool. And then uh, depending upon the ratio of those two assets, that's going to determine the price. And you know, it's a, the, the pricing curve isn't linear, there's a bit of a, it's, it's, it's curved. And so if you swap more USDC than ETH, the price will change at a different, at a, at a different rate. So an automated market maker removes the need for a central limit order book. And the reason why this was important on Ethereum and, and on other chains where it's gotten quite a bit of adoption is because of the block times. The block times mm-hmm. are too long on a lot of chains in order to support a central limit order book. On XRPL, there's actually uh, a central limit order book native functionality and the liquidity pools and this liquidity, this AMM amendment 
uh, we saw this as a further augmentation of the central limit order book in order to build out even more liquidity. So now individuals can provide liquidity and actually, it's interesting, may potentially earn yields on their assets. Mm -hmm. Why this is important, why why we're excited about it is that uh, this AMM functionality that we're proposing is very different than the functionality you see on Ethereum or, or on, on the AMMs like Uniswap, et cetera. Well, first off, this functionality is native, right? So the liquidity will then be shared amongst all of the applications that are built on top of XRPL. So okay. with Ethereum, you have Uniswap, SushiSwap. Those are two segregated liquidity pools. So if you want to trade an ETHUSDC on Uniswap or ETHUSDC on SushiSwap, you'll see there's, they're different. They'll have different liquidity. It's not shared. What's great about it on the native functionality is that it will be shared. But two, uh, liquidity pools and AMMs suffer from what's called uh, impermanent loss. So what impermanent loss basically is, is that as a liquidity provider, if I deposit my two assets, as I mentioned, ETH, USDC, the volatility of those assets, if you know the price of ETH goes up, I won't get the same amount of assets when I withdraw from the liquidity pool. And that's just a common problem for, for AMMs. What David Schwartz has, has wrote, which is our CTO, has come up with a way to minimize and reduce impermanent loss through what's called constant auction mechanism. And so I can't really get into too much of the details. Yeah. I'm not technical <laughs> enough. But if, what, what you need to know is that effectively it does minimize the impermanent loss, which is super exciting and solves a huge pain point with existing AMMs today. So like users of Uniswap would face a higher risk of impermanent loss than via the AMM that's that's being developed on your side is, is basically the takeaway, the way to think about it. Is a, exactly. Is a major and so and to kind of if you kind of put that into the institutional context and the idea of institutional DeFi adoption, institutions are incredibly sensitive to the bottom line, right? And impermanent loss can have a big impact on the bottom line. Uh, being able to reduce the impact of a permanent loss will ultimately drive more adoption for institutions, right? As an institution, I'm, I, I, I care about every single penny, right? That's why it's, this is really cool and we're very much excited about it. Wow. Okay. That, that does seem like the right type of incentive for institutions to maybe take this on. So, you know, it'll, it'll be good to have an eye on how this could develop even more over time. Now I want to take us to our next topic, though. I wanted to ask you about central bank digital currencies. How do you picture this landscape evolving in the years to come? And what is Ripple doing to help central banks implement CBDCs? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is actually a, a product that Ripple has. Uh, we've announced pilots uh, with a number of countries. Just recently, Montenegro. Before that, we had Bhutan. Central banks and, and governments are looking at the applications of, of digital currencies and the efficiencies it can create in very cash-heavy societies, right? And we've seen quite a bit of success there. And our CBDC team has been incredibly busy filling out you know, RFPs and getting inbounds from a number of central banks to, hey, how do we do this if we want to implement this? How do we, how do we create a digital currency? And all those currencies are built on, on XRP Ledger which is incredibly exciting because, again, it resonates that it's cheap, it's fast, and, and stable, right? When you have a central bank digital currency, you cannot have a network go down, right? Yeah. If you were to look forward to the future, I'd love to know, how do you picture these CBDCs accompanying traditional monetary policy, traditional currencies, what central banks traditionally do? Yeah, it's 
it's this would be me purely speculating, but the way I would see CBDCs really coexisting with with stable coins uh, in the future, I'd like to see that happen. I think CBDCs might be the digital currency that is used domestically potentially or, or or the digital currency used between banks and central banks right to settle deposits differences etc things like that and then you could have other stable coins which are more retail facing right mm-hmm. uh, and those are maybe used in cross border or used in in other parts of the, the ecosystem right uh, and they ultimately back settle into these cbdcs that could be one way of this evolving, and I'm uh, I'm putting my money on that's the way things go. Yeah, no, it's, it'll be exciting to see how it how it plays out. And then I want to I want to step back now and ask you about uh, recent industry trends. I know you know as we know, 2022 was of course a challenging year in fintech and in crypto in particular, with the broad downturn and headlines like those surrounding FTX, Terra Luna, etc. Are there any major takeaways from this in your view? And what do you see as the biggest challenges or growth areas for Ripple over the next five years or so? Yeah, it's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Easy question. <laughs> Good layup. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, I think the Terra Luna and FTX sagas are very different. I think Terra Luna, there's different, I guess, and they have a lot of similarities too. But I think with Luna, what we saw there was a marketing and you know, maybe really false marketing of, of and misunderstanding of the broader public of how yields are generated, right? There just wasn't clarity. There wasn't, there was a failed mechanism there, right? That just didn't work and ultimately had Ponzi scheme like economics. That obviously painted stable coins <laughs> broadly, even though the, you know, UST was, a, was an algorithmic based stable coin, not backed fiat by fiat one to one, but it painted the industry quite negatively at that point. And it had an impact, I think, on DeFi, right? Because the yields, as they claimed, were generated, but through DeFi and decentralized finance. But I, I think this is a bit of a buyer beware moment for the industry. And you have to understand what you are getting yourself into and understand that quite intricately. And just don't listen to somebody promoting something on Twitter. Uh, I think FTX is a little more complicated because I, that was fraud, right? And that wasn't an issue about crypto. That was an issue of the individual, right? They had commingled customer funds, right? And used customer funds in, in Alameda in a hedge fund. And unfortunately, that is a problem that I'm not sure we can fix, right? As mm. humans, right? How do that? I think there should be, there is a fallout of a lot of regulations and safeguards that will be put in place to help prevent that. But fraud happens all the time. And I want to make sure that you know, we walk away and understand that this was not a crypto problem. This was a fraud problem, right? This was a, a human problem. And, you know, the, the impact of that is, is right, is, is more regulation, more regulatory scrutiny. What does this mean for Ripple? Well, look, we've always worked with the regulators, right? Given that our customers have always been financial institutions, they expect the highest level of compliance, both regulatory, KYC, AML, et cetera. And so for us, this isn't anything new. We've, we've always held ourselves to those kind of, I would, even, I would argue, banking-like standards. And you can ask anybody who's, who's partnered with us and worked with us. We, we definitely have some of the highest, <laughs> highest most uh, scrupulous KYC, AML, and regulatory, mm. regulatory standards that we work through. So what does it mean for us? Well, 
I think it's mostly a validation of, hey, we've been doing the right thing, even though when the rest of the industry necessarily wasn't. And so we'll continue to build on that. We'll continue to be active in those dialogues with the regulators where need be. But because we're going to continue to serve that highly regulated financial institution customer base, it's business as usual for us. I think that's a, a good answer to a, you know, a question with a lot to it. So I appreciate that. And then moving on to a little bit more about you and your background, can you talk about your choice to go to business school, specifically to go to Wharton for your MBA? How did it impact you and what might you suggest to listeners who may wish to work in fintech or crypto as it relates to pursuing an MBA? Yeah, I'm glad to. I, I think for me, the MBA definitely was life-changing. Uh, it was the way for me to pivot. Sometimes you just, in financial services, right, you can get pigeonholed into a single sector of financial service. So I was a power and utilities banker towards the end, right? I was sales and trading before, and then I, I did power and utilities. And this was, frankly, the way I, I could hit the reset button, but still leverage my existing skill set and, and transition into an industry that I, I found more exciting uh, and I was truly passionate about. So. Definitely, I recommend it. And, you could, and it's also a risk-averse way to do it. Uh, chose Wharton because uh, it had a very great alumni network, great resources on the fintech side. And at that time, fintech and crypto, <laughs> crypto wasn't really an industry, right? To, <laughs> yeah, to, be, yeah. to be honest, in 2017. And so being able to tap into the huge alumni network, the Penn Blockchain Club, uh, the fintech club, to really understand the sector and all the different moving pieces and really just get exposed to the lingo, right? The lingo is similar in fintech to TradFi, but a lot cooler, but it's still lingo <laughs> and you have to learn yeah. it, right? And so yeah. that was tremendously helpful. Uh, the mentoring resources I've received also through Wharton have just been unbelievable and definitely you know, has been my top choice. I also did Lauder. Uh, so I did the, 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 the Lauder Institute. And for me, you know, crypto is, is global and fintech is global. And so having kind of that global perspective was really important. So best decision I've ever made uh, and uh, never looked back at it with regret. That's great. I love to hear that. And it does lead me to another, another question. As great as Wharton and MBAs can be for pursuing this path that you have, I think, you know, it's not like in your classes you were learning about automated market makers or, well, maybe that was a little bit too long ago anyway. But point <laughs> being, what advice do you have for our listeners on how to break in or at least to learn more about the world of crypto, specifically with respect to what they can do on their own. Yeah. And I, I speak to a lot of people, right, that say they're really interested in crypto and in blockchain. And this was kind of true in 2017 when the bull market happened. But, you know, if you saw who had an internship and continued to stay into blockchain and crypto, it was really the really passionate people. And there was just three of us out of a class of, I think, five well, we were 800, I think at the time, you know, 500 people wanted to, it was almost as many people wow. wanted to go into crypto and, and at the peak of 2017 as they did into consulting, right? <laughs> so we went through that same kind of cycle. The, the best way to learn though, and, and is really put your money where your mouth is. You tell me you're passionate about crypto, but can you actually, do you actually do anything in crypto? Right? Do you, outside of, hey, I just bought Bitcoin and Ethereum, do you actually have a MetaMask wallet? Have you traded on, on Uniswap? Have you staked assets on Aave? You should, you should at least, at the very least, do that. 
And, you know, I'm not telling you to put in, you know, hundreds, thousands of dollars, put 20 bucks in, play around. You need to understand uh, how these pieces work together. Buy an NFT, just genuinely go out and do things. That's the only way you really learn this space. There's no, <laughs> I hate to say, there's really no great textbook. Ultimately, this industry moves so much faster than textbooks can be written. There's always mm-hmm. new innovations that you need to stay on top of. So if you're really passionate about this space, you're really interested, put your money where your mouth is. Awesome. Wow, that's some some good, some concrete advice. And I know it's all from your very own experience. So thank you, Boris, for getting into that. And, and I'll use it a bit to segue to our very last question I've got for you. Uh, we love to ask our guests a bit about their lives outside of work. So outside of what you do at Ripple and and with cryptocurrencies, uh, you know, what do you like to do? How do you relax? Oh man, I, I love to disconnect. <laughs> so then uh, what that means is just spending time out in nature, whether it's hiking, whether it's you know trekking and really traveling. Uh, actually, I'm on my way to Argentina now. Uh, I'm going to spend <laughs> going to spend some time disconnecting. And it's important to disconnect with crypto because. You're online 24-7, right? Whether it's Twitter, whether it's, you know, emails, et cetera. I, I find it important to, to disconnect from really the phone, from technology, from self-service. Uh, and that's what I love to do. I love to just go away, be in nature, and just kind of reset there. Awesome. Well, on that note, enjoy your trip. And uh, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure, Nate. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on social media or give us a review. We appreciate your support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafa Austria. And until next time, I'm your host, Nate G.